Welcome to the Academic CME Podcast. As always, this program is a top quality accredited CE activity. If you would like to receive credit for this or any other Academic CME Podcast, please click the link in the description below or go to academiccme.com forward slash podcast. Welcome to this continuing education program entitled Scientific Updates to Improve Outcomes in Patients with Alzheimer's Disease, Strategies to Care for Alzheimer's Patients During COVID-19. Today's topic is Virtual Healthcare for Patients with AD During the COVID-19 Pandemic. This activity is supported by an independent educational grant from Biogen and is provided by Academic CME. Hi, my name is Dr. Richard Isaacson director of the Alzheimer's Prevention Clinic at Weill Cornell Medicine in New York Presbyterian in New York City. I'm an associate professor of neurology and assistant dean in faculty. Uh, I'm here today joined by two of my very close colleagues and, and friends. Uh, first, Holly Herstoff. She is the family nurse practitioner uh, in both neurology and memory disorders at the Alzheimer's Prevention Clinic. She's also the clinical operations director of the Women's Brain Initiative here at Weill Cornell Medicine. And then we also have my old friend, Juan Melendez, Dr. Melendez is an associate specialist, old age psychiatry and clinical lead at the Jersey Memory Assessment Service over at the Poplars in Overdale Hospital in the beautiful Jersey, United Kingdom. And now that's not New Jersey, that's the old Jersey, the real Jersey, the original uh, over uh, on the island of Jersey in the English Channel. Um, thanks so much for being here, both of you guys. And I'm really looking forward to talking to you about this because, you know, practitioners like us um, with our boots on the ground, we've, we've really... Um, had to change so much about what we do and how we approach patient care when it comes to Alzheimer's disease. Um, Holly, um, maybe we could start with you. Just what, what, what has it been like over the last several months caring for people uh, with dementia? Um, you know, obviously we've, we've transitioned. We've now cared for um, many of our patients through telemedicine. Kind of as an overview, what, what has it been like? Um, you know, in the beginning, it was quite tough. Um, dementia patients are it's better to be in person, I feel like, with dementia patients. You just connect better. You have the caregiver there. Um, so trying to connect over the phone or through FaceTime, um, especially with the older care providers, is a bit more challenging. Um, but, you know, over time, it's gotten a bit easier. Using, like, um, the help from social work has been super helpful. Um, and, you know, um, just kind of learning as we go. Um, that's really been the way we've done it. Um, so yeah, great. And Juan, how has it been like for you? You were you were an early adopter of of uh, of going, um, you know, telemedicine and and phone and and maybe tell us what it's been like uh, from your perspective. Yeah, I mean, it has been COVID nineteen has changed the uh, full landscape of of uh, caring for people with, with Alzheimer's and, and related dementias. Um, as as Holly say, it has been challenging. It has been full of darkness and light during this period. We 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 basically have to. Uh, closed down the memory service for new assessments, but we kept a skeleton service for uh, phone calls. And, um, and we also, what we did is dividing patients in five categories, categories based on severity of symptoms and social care concerns. So level one to level three were patients who were managed remotely by phone calls, and the patients in level four, level five were managed. Those were patients who have to be seen at least weekly. So they were managed by our uh, community uh, home treatment team. So they were seen face to face. It has been challenging. We, we rely 
significantly on uh, in the with the help of the Jersey Alzheimer's Association. They have a helpline, and they were in close collaboration with us. So there were phone calls that they never reached us, but they reached them. So they were sharing that information with us. Um, I found difficult not being able to assess new cases. So we have, therefore, we have a, a significant backlog of, of cases waiting to be to be assessed. Um, but I think uh, on reflection, obviously, there, there, there are things from this um, experience that could be used as a model for a future uh, future uh, care uh, system. So, as I say at the beginning, full of uh, there's some darkness and some light into into this. Yeah, and I agree with you. I actually agree with both of you. Um, there has been many challenges, but um, you know, in some ways, I'm I'm now a little bit in more of a groove with with contacting several of our patients with dementia and their caregivers. And um, you know, it, sometimes it's hard for people with dementia to get to the office, um, even in New York City, when you have to maybe just walk a few blocks or take a subway. With COVID nineteen. Um, yeah, there's not much subway taking and, and even walking through the streets, um, you know, can be harrowing. Um, and then, of course, there's patients that come from out of town and commute for an hour. And again, now with, with everything going on, it's much more difficult. So now that I think, um, again, agree with you, the, the darkness and light, after some of the hiccups, the technological glitches, when, when a routine has been established, um, you know, I have, a, I have one patient who's in a, a clinical trial and she's no longer been able to do her study visits uh, for the trial and she's starting to decline. Uh, we just decided to set up a weekly phone conference um, and, you know, sometimes the video works and sometimes it doesn't. And just, so, just knowing that there's someone on the other end of the phone that if something's not going on on Monday at three o'clock, um, you know, for, for my most you know significantly impaired patients, at least there's a touch point. At least the family knows that no matter what, we can you know always be in contact if needed. So I think there's been um, definitely challenges, but also um, you know some some potential benefits. And I hope that you know the landscape with reimbursement, uh, you know, in the United States, so we have a very different system, of course, than the UK. Um, but I hope that these changes persist. I hope we're able to be you know reimbursed for the care, both from commercial insurance companies as well as Medicare and I have a feeling that you know with the advocacy efforts of, of our field and our fields our global medical field um, I hope that um, telemedicine and, and even phone visits will be compensated and reimbursed in the future so, um, I think I think one of the you know unique aspects of COVID-19 is um, the effects of confinement uh, to the home during the COVID-19 lockdowns. And, um, you know, Juan, uh, you sent over a, a report. Uh, it was actually a really terrific re report um, on the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on people living with dementia in the United Kingdom. And it, it really um, gave a nice, um, you know, overview of this. Um, um, maybe Juan, maybe you can start and just tell us what it's been like. Um, what are the effects been during the lockdowns? And even maybe what are the effects post lockdowns now that we've eased things up a bit? Wait. As we all know, Richard, for this group of patients, even in, in normal times, normal times are challenging for them because they depend on other people to help them out. They depend on people to do things that we do without realizing day-to-day -day things. Caregivers are also, um, often they don't have the support, even normal, I'm talking about normal, normal circumstances, don't have the level of support that they require and the psycho psychological uh, support that they need. So with the COVID-19, what COVID-19 has brought is uh, confinement, personal restriction, social distancing, and special attention to hygiene. You know, we have to wear masks, we have to extra, you know, wash our hands, we have to really wear gloves. These are instructions that are very difficult to understand by somebody who is cognitively impaired. So uh, it has been, 
obviously what this has obviously caused is uh, increased isolation, uh, no purpose, uh, no purpose activity, and high chance of infection. I mean, I've seen, uh, uh, Richard, an increased number of patients that have to be seen in the community with uh, agitation, uh, with uh, psychosis, uh, with uh, insomnia. But also, the helpline from the uh, Jersey Alzheimer's Association has been receiving phone calls from caregivers who were finding very difficult to cope and to keep somebody who was so used to have a routine. Because people with dementia, what they really do well is with routine. They, they do well with routine, with continuity of care, with social engagement, uh, with families, with friends, and uh, joining groups, and showing them signs of uh, love and affection doing <coughs> real exercise. And this is something that COVID-19 doesn't really like. Um, so it has been really tough. I mean, majority of patients with dementia, we know 60% at least live in the community, but there is another 40% that who lives in, in care homes. And in care homes, the, the, the problem has been, been even greater. I mean, care homes, as you know, they've been badly hit. And if we compare the numbers of deaths of COVID-19 affecting people with dementia with COVID-19 affecting people with no dementia, it's almost uh, three times the death rate among people in care homes um, has been up something like 70% of the, of the death with COVID-19 were in, in, in care homes. So it's been significantly uh, a serious thing because care homes obviously didn't have the, sometimes the training, they didn't have the possibility to uh, do uh, uh, isolation. There, there were patients who were, there was difficulties accessing to PPE, accessing to a PCR testing, and uh, patients were transferred from general hospital into, into care homes without being tested. Um, so it has been really, really hard. Uh, very, 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 very difficult uh, indeed. And, and I hope we learned some lessons uh, for uh, um, we, we, we face a, a second spike. Yeah. Yeah. I, th I think just, I mean, great, great points. And two, I want to just reiterate on, um, you know, one about, you know, in New York, um, in New York city, you know, we were hit very hard, very fast. Um, but I have to, on the whole, give, give very strong kudos to our, um, our government, our local governments, our, our state governments, and, and really, um, did everything that they could have tried to do, uh, within reason. Um, but one of the misses, you know, they get, they, they did, as best as one can be expected. And I think uh, really saved, you know, hopefully, you know, thousands, maybe even tens of thousands of lives. That being said, I think the, the major uh, misstep uh, in the, 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 the response from the governmental response was sending patients back to um, nursing home facilities, care homes, assisted livings, memory care centers, um, sending patients back to with who, who either had COVID-19 or maybe wasn't, you know, tested right before they left. Um, and then that really could have, could have just catastrophic effects. Um, and, it, you know, it, you know, one of our patients actually, um, you know, passed away um, because a patient that was like in her room was previously in the hospital and came back and then gave our patient, you know, COVID-19 who was, she was hospitalized for something else. So, you know, I, I think, I don't know that we have all the answers because our hospitals were overwhelmed. Um, you know, there has to be in some way, this is a, an ethical struggle, but, you know, do we provide, who do we provide care to? Um, and do we provide care mostly to the young? What about the, you know, the infirmed and, and the demented patients? Should they be deprioritized? What are the ethics surrounding this? I know this has been an issue in the UK. It was also an issue in the United States. Um, Italy and other parts of Europe had the same issues. Um, but I think before a second wave or, or really for, for the future and just in case, you know, God forbid, other uh, pandemics or something else happens, we need a more 
kind of rigorous approach, you know, and in one state in the United States, they decided to take all the patients who were possibly infected instead of sending them back to their original nursing home or care home, they went to a separate one and they designated certain COVID-19 care homes. Um, I think that could be a strategy, but this stuff needs to be planned in advance. The other thing you said, Juan, um, you know, dementia and Alzheimer's disease was the most common pre-existing health condition and deaths involving COVID-19 early in the pandemic in the UK. And like you take a step back and you listen to that. I mean, that's, that's striking. That's striking. And there's probably, you know, there's multiple reasons for that. Um, and you know, one of the interesting reasons, uh, people with two copies of the APOE4 allele, the APOE4 variant, which is, you know, you have one copy is, is one variant. APOE4 is, 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 you know, 25% of the population, but only one to 2% of the population has two variants. Um, that's been found two variants um, has been found to have, you know, a, a much higher likelihood of, of, a, of a worse COVID-19 outcome. And, you know, we could talk more about this, but, you know, I'm sure there's a variety of reasons from genetic to medical to cognitive, um, so many reasons why patients with dementia, um, you know, really have to be um, cared for differently and, 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 and risk stratified and, and, and plans made differently um, for, for their care. Um, so Holly, you, you and I cared for um, several patients, uh, many patients through uh, telemedicine over the last several months. Um, I think one, one patient comes to mind, um, a, patient, a man in his early 90s, um, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, they were stuck at home in a very small uh, place. Um, they actually had a, a live-in, I believe, or five days a week um, caregiver um, that ended up having to go back to a different state, Pennsylvania, to take care of um, uh, her uh, family member. And all of a sudden, we have a 90-year-old uh, man with, with mild to moderate dementia and his late 80s-year-old wife, who then became a primary caregiver. And she had a tough time because aside from age, she needed a knee replacement. And she couldn't even get the knee replacement because all the elective surgeries were shut down. So, Holly, maybe talk to me about a little bit of that and, and kind of the, the challenges in managing the uh, – and then we had family members jump in on the phone on, and, and – uh, magically appear from different states. We've never seen these people before making demands and, and, and not understanding the complexity of care. Um, what have you learned with, with caring, pa caring for patients and some of the unique challenges? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, to touch on the point of planning ahead, I think that that, you know, obviously we couldn't have planned for this. We didn't know this was going to happen. But, you know, um, to have a plan in place just in case for even if, you know, your care provider is sick or, um, you aren't able to, you know, do the adult daycares or the respite or, or things like that. Just having something in place beforehand in case something like this ever happens again, I think is a is really um, a big lesson from this. So, you know, I think that at first we were pretty much scrambling because they didn't have help at home. Um, they were desperate. They needed it. So, you know, getting the family more involved right away versus just kind of, you know, slowly trickling in here and there. I think having the family involved right away would be uh, super important in the future. Um, also, you know, with, with dementia patients, and he's mild to moderate, but even the, you know, they, they're not good with washing hands. They may have problems with a mask, you know, things like that. I think that, you know, having, I actually learned this from one of our social workers that we work with, putting signs in the bathroom to wash, to wash, to remind to wash hands and about the mask, having signs around the home. Um, 
Mm. You know, stuff like that, filling prescriptions for longer periods. So like a 90 day prescription versus a 30 day prescription, you know, so you don't have to be going to the, you know, here in New York, we're lucky we have delivery, but in like rural areas, there's not really delivery for, for pharmaceuticals and things like that. So, you know, just having those things in the back of the back of your head, um, I think would be important for the future and even now. So. Yeah, um, I mean, um, learn the, the major take-home point: planning for disaster. Um, right, we don't even need a pandemic for you know if someone is helping around the house five days a week and living in, and then you know if the the, the caregiver, the the, the spouse, um, daughter, a son, if there's someone that helps on weekends, for example, well, that's that's great. You have a, a backup person, uh, and that can you know help. But if the primary caregiver who's a paid caregiver, um, which is who that person is basically required for that, for the the person with Alzheimer's to be able to successfully stay in the home and not have to be transferred to a care home. um, Having a backup plan is critical. And I think several of our patients, you know, came in the same, were in the same boat, um, you know, and, and, and like, what, what do you do? How do you get someone last minute? Um, And then, you know, the children, there was children in different States, but there were travel restrictions. Um, So obviously this is definitely a unique situation. Situation. Um, and, and, you know, it, whether it's child care having a backup or um, caring at home having a backup, um, even, you know, for my mom, for example, is in, a, in, a, in an assisted living um, down in Florida. And, you know, they, uh, you know, the staffing was less. Um, you know, we had to then find an, an additional person that would stay with her 24-7 because when they have adequate staffing, my mom is okay. She can get by. But with one person checking on her every shift, you know, every eight hours, my mom can't wait eight hours to go to the bathroom. So we needed someone to, you know, come and and we needed to hire someone full time. So, um, you know, preparing early, having a backup plan, you know, pulling the trigger on, you know, saying we're going to do this now before it's too late, um, I think is really important. And that's definitely something um, I think we've learned uh, during this pandemic. Um, I guess another couple of things, you know, COVID-19 certainly brings unique challenges. Um, That's, that's for sure. Um, and, you know, there's a variety of, um, you know, measures to support people living with dementia during the pandemic. We've touched on, you know, having clinics via video conference and clinics via phone. And, and that's, you know, something that I, I hope will be reimbursed. And, and, and you know, I think payers, I, I think, need to pay attention to that. I think it may be cost effective in the long term, actually. Um, but we need to do research to, to prove that. Um, but I think one thing that, that I've, I think that was, that was, that was really tough. I, mean, I had a family member. Um, my my brother's uh, mother-in-law that was hospitalized with COVID-19. And, you know, when you go into the hospital with COVID-19, you go into the hospital by yourself. If you get sick, you get sick by yourself. If you get critically ill, you're, you're critically ill by yourself. And COVID-19 patients on the whole die alone. And that is just a terrible, terrible thing. And, and I think, you know, people made decisions. Should I go to the, you know, ER or not? Because once I'm there, I'm, it's, it's over. And one of the key critical factors is, is what can we do? What measures can we do to support people with dementia in the hospital? Um, you know, and, and, and these restrictions, um, you know, I think in the UK, um, they've, they've, uh, there's, there's, for example, a list of, of exceptional circumstances that I was reading about. Um, for example, even in the, even in, in New York, um, mothers that were giving birth, um, for a few weeks when during the, the height of the pandemic, they, I know this sounds like a, 
a crazy decision, but it, 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 you know, it was for the, the, the health and, and wellness of, of the staff and the baby and, and the mother, they weren't even allowing, um, you know, the spouses or the, or the, the father, the, 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 you know, other family members in, um, in the room when the baby was being delivered. And this, this was a huge, huge thing and, and a lot of criticism, but you know, it, this is tricky when it comes to dementia, it's something similar. Um, Juan or Holly, um, you know, what, what are your thoughts on this and what, 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 uh, what should, you know, practitioners listening, um, you know, what should they think about um, when recommending hospital-based care for a person with dementia? It's a tough one. Um, I don't think there is a single answer. I think it has to be obviously down to individual cases. We, in Jersey, we were lucky, Richard, because our government made the ministerial decision of allowing family members to accompany those patients in the general hospital who were uh, at the end of their life. Uh, that was a decision made throughout the lockdown, following concerns from relatives and from, from charity groups. That, as you say, people were dying uh, alone, people dying in, in, in circumstances that we will not like any of our loved ones to, to live. It's, it's difficult. The decision first has to be, does the person have to go into hospital? Uh, is the condition serious enough? Uh, that requires hospital admission. Can the person be managed? What are the services around in terms of uh, uh, support, medical support that can support that person at home? What sort of uh, medical intervention the person requires that can be provided at home? I mean, we have a, a crisis team. We have a crisis team that provides face-to-face uh, -face access to, to the patient's house. And we will, we will be doing that with our PPE, but we also have a rapid response team, a team that can good IV access, that can uh, give antibiotics, that can take uh, blood samples at home. And that is a way of uh, preventing patients to go into hospital in the first instance. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's been proved very, very beneficial throughout this, uh, through this pandemic. Um, if the person needs uh, to go into hospital, then, then this, this uh, reflection needs to take place where obviously from the beginning, family has to be involved in the day-to-day -day care of that person even if it's nominating one person from the family, identify one member of the family who can be the, the, the person who can visit. Um, the one who may be younger, fitter, with less comorbidities, who doesn't live with somebody who is also uh, uh, part of the, uh, a risk group. And that person could be the, the uh, link between the rest of the family and the loved one. So um, I think it has to be, I say, it has to be in individual cases. The first question I say, which I would be, does the person need to go into hospital? What can be provided in the community uh, in terms of uh, medical interventions that might, I mean, can we treat that urine infection at home? Can we give uh, IV antibiotics at home? Can we put an, an IV access and, and or a rapid response team nurses can supervise with the GP? Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a very difficult one. Very difficult one. Great, Holly. I'd love your thoughts on that because you know our medical system is is different. Um, my goodness, I think I want to move to Jersey. Um, I was um, with that kind of structured. Um, I mean, it's it's like embarrassing that our healthcare system doesn't really have anything like that um, at all. But um, Holly, you know, you've worked in the emergency room for years. You've been a family nurse practitioner. You've worked in our Alzheimer's prevention clinic. Um, what what have taken all that experience and, and combining it? You know, how do you how do you view this? You know, uh, for a dementia patient now to go into the hospital and not have, I think, I mean, I think now they can have a family member and a, or a visitor, but, you know, during when it was really high here in New York, um, 
like the ethical, like it just doesn't seem like maybe having a healthier, like Dr. Melinda said, a healthier member of the family or somebody to be an advocate for that patient because obviously that patient can't be an advocate for themselves. I know there's patient advocates in the hospital and pastoral care and all that, and, and I'm sure they, they have helped pave the way for some of those patients, but um, I don't think there's an easy answer here. It's, you know, policy change is, is, is difficult. So, um, yeah, I, I, I just think that something in the future, if, if God forbid this happens again, there has to be a, something in place to help these patients um, mm -hmm. be able to advocate for themselves because, or advocate for them because they obviously they can't, they, they all can't do that. So um, I don't think there's an easy answer. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the concept that both you guys are hitting on is the need for some sort of a disaster plan. Um, and in this case, it was a pandemic disaster plan. But, you know, what I've learned from this, um, I've, we've learned, I've learned a lot in the last several months. I, I wish this didn't happen, but there is, I guess, a tiny bit of silver lining in terms of, you know, in, in terms of future preparations, um, you know, in my own life, whether it's childcare or extra paper towels or whatever it is, um, you know, some, some, some emergency stuff, having an emergency care plan uh, for patients with dementia is critical, um, you know, getting this family meeting together, um, getting, getting the family members involved early. Um, and honestly, I, th I think going forward, um, I mean, time permitting, I, I think we need to prioritize these types of emergency uh, conversations early on in the care plan. You know, we're first trying to get, you know, get the medicines on board and the social worker involved and, you know, uh, the, the patient education, caregiver education, social work support and music therapy. You know, we're trying to give all this ancillary, whatever else is available, um, you know, nutrition, exercise. We, we hit on all these things. But emergency planning, you know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And, um, you know, I, I think... You know, just like we have an annual wellness uh, visit or something that Medicare pays for, for for primary care in a primary care setting. I'm not sure how that works in the United Kingdom, Juan, but, um, you know, maybe 20 minutes a year of, hey, uh, what happens if? And then what happens if this? Okay, great. You're in, you're in charge. You're the primary caregiver. Who's number two and number three? Well, there is no one. Well, there has to be someone. And just having these, you know, and Juan and Holly, you agreed, having a younger, healthier person as an additional backup in, the, in a case of crisis, that's really important. I never would have thought about that, um, you know, months ago. Um, so, you know, I guess to conclude, um, the um, COVID pandemic has, you know, uniquely affected um, patients that we care for um, from, you know, the strange environment, you know, wearing masks and putting on gloves, like that's, 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 that's tough, right? Being, uh, um, you know, frequent hand washing again, and I like that idea of reminders and signs up in the bathroom. I think that we're learning on that there are some best practices and I think we have, um, you know, learned that. I think one thing that um, I'd like to, you know, think about and figure out maybe what we could do is, you know, in, in the video care of a patient, like what can we do from a telemedicine perspective to evaluate cognitive function? What can we do to, you know, evaluate, you know, the physical exam? Well, what are the key things? Um, Juan and Holly, to conclude, are there some things that you'd advocate for, for practitioners out there? Um, you know, is there a, you know, a specific exam finding you can do through video or is there a, a set of questions you may ask a patient or 
any any best practices there? Holly, what, what have you found um, that have potentially been helpful? I mean, I think that a lot of, not a lot, but some of the tests that we do in office, we can still do via telemedicine. I mean, um, I also work with a research study. We're doing MOCA on patients. Um, I know we're doing MMSC for the, the clinic. Um, so, you know, those assessments just to monitor patients' outcomes over time to see if their mental abilities are declining even maybe more rapidly. Um, I think that's super important. Um, so that's definitely helped. And, you know, that was a, a learn while you go kind of thing. Um, but now I think we're a bit more used to it. And, um, you know, it's just kind of like normal now. So, <laughs> um, so that's been great. And um, I think as time goes on, and if this telemedicine continues, I think that it's um, actually maybe some of, I think it's also been beneficial for our dementia patients because I feel like we're connecting more than we normally would. You know, usually we're having them in the office every three months, but now, like you said, we're talking every couple of weeks. So it's um, actually been pretty good for, for the most part, the light and the darkness, so. Great, thanks so much. And Juan, how to, to conclude? I 100% agree with uh, Holly. I think, um, I would say that obviously in medicine, 80 to 90% of the diagnosis is based in the clinical history. The clinical history remains the same with telemedicine. I'm still able to gather the information that I need from the patient and from the family. So that, that is still there, it has not changed. So 80% is based on clinical history. Then yeah, we can do most of the memory tests, cognitive tests that we used to do before face-to-face, uh, -face, the Addenbrooks, the MOCA. We also send the families uh, a questionnaire, and it's, it's the informal questionnaire, the IQ code, the IQ code, which uh, is the informal questionnaire where the, 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 the informant and the family are uh, taking, you know, reporting changes in cognition and function in the last 10 years. So I think that uh, all, although we could say that it's not suboptimal, we would prefer the, 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 the more closer contact with the patient and the family. There's still so much that we can do. And also another thing I learned is that during the, the more difficult times during the lockdown, it was not about making a diagnosis as such. It was about identifying the key symptoms and identifying the main risk factors. It was about, it was about supporting post, you know, signposting rather than giving a, a final diagnosis. I think the final diagnosis could be could be could wait could be deferred later on when we have access to neuroimaging, access to to other biomarkers. Um, but it was to identify the, the 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 main symptoms suggesting there has been a change in cognition and function, and also the risk the risk factors and and and, and be able to mitigate those risks. So I think that there's still so much, uh, Richard, that we can do we can do remotely. Um, that means make me think that uh, yeah the the the, the even if we have a second, a second wave, um, there is room to continue providing some form of uh, normality in terms of uh, uh, service that we have not been able fully to, to, to provide during the, first, during the first wave because we obviously uh, never faced this before. Mm. Yep, couldn't agree with you more. So Holly, um, Juan, thank you so much for, for, uh, for doing this and, and for, for the conversation. I think we touched on a lot of um, critical uh, points that hopefully uh, listeners um, can benefit from. And uh, you know, one of the main take-home points that I learned today is um, preparation um, and that there's lots of things you can do. There are best practices uh, when it comes to uh, caring for Alzheimer's patients. 
virtually uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic. And um, I hope these best practices, you know, improve patient care uh, and, and patient outcomes and, and, and lead to better quality of care uh, going forward. So thanks so much. Uh, this activity, again, uh, uh, was uh, scientific updates to improve outcomes in patients with Alzheimer's disease, strategies to care for Alzheimer's patients during COVID-19. Uh, and uh, I really appreciate your, uh, your time. Thanks so Thank much. Thank you very much.